Good morning, everybody. Um, Again, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Maranatha, and I'm excited that we get to worship God here together as we open up His Word. Before we get into the sermon, we're going to take a second and pray, just just as we did last week as we prayed for um, Afghanistan. We're going to take a moment and pray for another uh, people, a country who is uh, who are suffering right now. And so we wanted to ask uh, Justin Bubar to come up and lead us in that and also sort of explain why we're praying for them. So Justin, here you go. All right. Good morning, Maranatha. Um, again, my name is Justin. Uh, I've done a lot of missionary work in Haiti and uh, a business that I own, we f- help fund a few Haitian pastors there. Um, we used to work with a, a place called Breathe Partners, um, which is now significance of one. Um, but our I just talk, I spoke with uh, Pastor Shalo, who's a Haitian pastor there living there, uh, two, two nights ago, because I told him we were going to be praying for them in the country of Haiti, and he sent me a whole list of things to pray for. So um, some of those things are that there are gangs now overrunning Port-au-Prince, which is their major city you fly into. Um, supplies are uh, going through the roof in price. Um, there are... Um, just uh, people without homes and without jobs, so praying for God's providence with that and strengthening the church there and our missionaries there. Um, Pastor Shalo has said he, it's hard leading there um, as as any church, but specifically there with the turmoil, the earthquake, and then the hurricane. So just praying over the whole nation, um, praying that le- uh, godly leaders would rise up to uh, lead the country, and uh, our brothers and sisters, we pray for their protection. So those are some of the things we'll be praying for right now. Uh, Lord, you are holy, uh, majestic, wonderful, gracious, merciful. Um, we ask that you would protect the country of Haiti uh, from more hurricanes, more earthquakes, uh, from the political unrest, from their recent president assassination. Uh, we, play, we pray Uh, You would protect the Haitian citizens from gangs that are controlling the major cities. We pray you'd bring peace and comfort to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living there as they navigate life and worshiping you in this turmoil. We ask that you would continue to provide for those who do not have jobs, uh, the basic necessities of life. We pray you'd bring wisdom to our uh, Haitian and American pastors there as they lead their families, as they lead your church. We know that you're sovereign. We know you're in control of all these things that are happening there, and your hand is on that. We ask that you uh, would do these things because we know you love us, and we love you. Uh, we know you're able to do all things. And so we, we humbly ask these things, request these things, and we thank you for the grace and mercy you show us every day as we live here in America. We're reminded of the freedoms we have and the protection we have here. Um, we pray we would be lights here. We pray that those overseas would continue to be bold in sharing the gospel and proclaiming your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Colossians 1. It might feel like we've been in Colossians 1 for a while. Um, the good news, if you're feeling that way, is we only have one more week in Colossians 1. So that'll finish up next week, but we are going to um, start in verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1 today. So if you're not there, um, go ahead and turn there. Uh, last week, if you remember, was all about Christ and who he is. It was all about the fact that Christ is preeminent, Christ is in control, Christ is higher than any other power or authority in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That was 
what last, me- what, uh, last week was about. This week is much more about bringing home the fact of what, um, what Christ has done and what that does to us and for us. So last week's all about who he, was, who he is. This week is all about what he has done for you and for me. And this whole uh, sermon, this whole message, this whole passage, I think can be summed up pretty easily just by saying that because of Jesus, we are taken from completely hostile to totally reconciled. Because of Jesus, we go from t- totally hostile to completely reconciled. That is what this passage is all about. So go ahead, if you're able, stand with us out of reverence for God's word as we read through this passage, Colossians 1:21 together. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Join me in prayer. Father God, we ask for the Holy Spirit to be working um, to open our eyes, to open our ears as we look into your word, as we hear it spoken Lord, that we would have a clearer picture of Jesus through this. And not just a clearer picture of Jesus, but an even clearer picture of what he has done for us. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you you have forgiven us and set us free. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the beginning of this, I'll give you a fair warning that we'll spend a fair amount of time in verse 21. And it's not exactly a pleasant verse. And so we might feel like we're hammering a certain idea over and over and over again. But stick with me because there's a point for us doing that. I mean, verse 21 starts off not with warm fuzzies, right? It starts off and says, as Paul is here describing the state of humanity before God saves them. This is what Paul says. This is what God says. We are, as human beings, before God saves us. We were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. Not exactly a great uh, description to bear for us. I mean, it says alienated, which is talking about the separation that you and I have from God because of sin. We're estranged, we're separated from God, we're alienated, we're cast out. And not only are we alienated, but we're also hostile. So it's not only that we're separated from God, but it's also that we dislike Him, we hate Him, and we're okay with that separation. That word hostile is actually often translated in the Bible, enemy, if you need it to be stronger than hostile. We're enemies in mind. And to make matters worse, we're not just separated and hostile. We're also carrying on doing evil deeds, making matters worse. That's us. That's humanity ever since Adam. Um, For every descendant of Adam, ever since sin came into the world before Christ. And it leaves us understanding that before God, you and I are completely unable, unwilling, and undeserving of salvation. We're completely unable, unwilling, and undeserving of grace. That's the position that we are in as human beings. And the theological term for this is the term depravity. And what I want us to focus on, a better way to understand it maybe, is to understand this as a complete inability. 
We have a complete inability to come to Christ on our own. We have a complete inability to, to earn anything with Christ. We have nothing in us that draws Christ or like we have nothing in us that um, makes us worthy or, you know, um, moves Christ toward us. That's what this means. We are unable, unwilling, undeserving. And it's easy for us maybe to think that we, if we, we only get this idea from this one passage, maybe if we squint really hard, we're making out this doctrine out of thin air. But the reality is that this doctrine, this idea, this teaching about humanity is well attested to throughout Scripture. Um, we can go to uh, Psalm, Psalm 14, if you turn there with me. It should be right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 14 says this, also describing the state of humanity. It says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Lest we think that that is just um, an Old Testament passage and somehow magically um, living on the other side of the cross just makes everything different. This same passage is quoted in Romans chapter 3 as Paul reiterates that this is the state of humanity before God's salvation. That's the state of our hearts. It's also spoken of in Romans chapter 5 where Paul says that in Adam, in Adam's sin, we all died. We all bear the curse of sin because of Adam. And not only that, we bear the curse of sin because we sin. Furthermore, in Titus chapter 3, it talks about this. We just read through it in our series through Titus. In Ephesians 1 and 2, it, it says this very plainly as well. This, we could go on. I could name more passages, but I think we get the point that this is a, a doctrine that is well attested to in Scripture. And this might seem extreme when we think about uh, saying that we are this completely unable and unwilling, but all this really takes is a clear understanding, a complete understanding of what sin is is. It's really easy for you and I to default to a certain understanding of sin that is more like a collection of actions that we do instead of something that's actually um, inside of us. We kind of go around through life and we think, all right, my good deeds pile up over here, my bad deeds pile up over here, but me, I kind of remain neutral or pure or something in the middle. But the reality is, and I got this from a pastor named Carl Truman who says, that sin, just like righteousness, is more than just actions. It's an identity. Sinfulness, just like righteousness, is an identity that we take on. Because sin is not exterior. It doesn't just stay out there. Sin infects us. It, it defiles us. It pollutes us. It enslaves us. That's what sin does. It doesn't just hang out out there. We don't get to just play with it and have it stay outside. Sin comes in and corrupts. And sin creates this hostility, this alienation between us and God. It creates a hostility from us toward God, and it creates a hostility from God toward us. It creates this hostility from us toward God because our hearts, because of sin, get bent in in such a way that we, instead of glorifying God, instead of rejoicing in the fact that He's holy, instead of enjoying the fact that He's holy and perfect and true and just, our sin bends us in such a way that we hate all of those things about God because we know deep down he's holy and we're not. And we want to be God. And that's the hostility we push 
towards God, and that likewise God has a hostility towards us, which is a little more uncomfortable to say out loud. But God has a hostility toward us because God is actually righteous and actually perfect, and in his righteousness and perfection, he can't simply overlook sin and act like it's not there. And you don't want a God, by the way, who can overlook sin and act like it's not there. You think about um, in Haiti, you think about a president getting assassinated, and you think about gangs overtaking cities. Do you want a God that is okay with overlooking that kind of evil? No, we don't want that God. That's not the God, thankfully, that exists. We have a God whose perfect character demands justice, demands perfection, and he can't be at home with sin. And this is about the point where you probably think we are hammering this point home and you're probably ready to move on like I am. But we have to understand that this is not, I'm not just doing this because it's a fun exercise and like um, feeling bad about ourselves to earn a Christian merit badge about how guilty we feel. See, the reality is that when we understand this properly, then you and I can actually understand the salvation we've been given much more clearly. But we have to understand this part first. Otherwise, grace doesn't really get to be that amazing. Because the amazing thing about what Christ did, as it says in verse 22, it says that he reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. The amazing thing is that that all happened not on account of people who were neutral towards him. Jesus didn't come for people who were even 1% good or holy. See, Jesus came for enemies. Jesus came to fulfill the law on behalf of those enemies and lay down his life for them. He came to a creation that was hostile to them and to him in doing evil deeds. He came to seek and save the lost. It was not that the lost were seeking salvation from him. He came to seek and save the lost. And so you and I are the ones that created this hostility between us and God. We're the ones that broke the relationship. We're the ones that created the breach in that relationship. And we're the ones that ought to have been the ones to pay back for our reconciliation. But the amazing thing about grace is that God paid for your reconciliation at his own cost. That's what's so amazing about grace. Even though we earned his wrath, he paid for our reconciliation. He We sinned against him and he saved us. We rebelled against him and he redeemed us. So you and I, in Christ, have gone from completely hostile to totally reconciled. And not just reconciled, but even on top of that, as verse 22 says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you're not just reconciled. The slate isn't just wiped clean. It's more than that. God's grace is much more than that. Think about the disparities that exist between these two lists. If you look at the first list, it says alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And this second list talks about reconciliation. It talks about being holy, blameless, and above reproach. There is an ocean of difference between those two lists. And the amazing thing about it is that it does not matter for you and I how blameworthy we were before Jesus. It doesn't matter how blameworthy we were before Jesus. In Jesus, we are blameless. Blameless. It doesn't matter how blameworthy we currently are. 
in Jesus, we're blameless. It doesn't matter how much we deserve reproach. In Jesus, we're above reproach. It doesn't matter where we are today. We can rest in the fact we know that in Christ, we are blameless. We're holy. We're above reproach. We're reconciled. See, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, sinners against him, directly against him, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. So we were saved by the one that we sinned against. And we were made holy and blameless and above reproach. You see, this is what's so amazing about the cross, is that on the cross, Jesus was not providing for you a potential salvation. On the cross, Jesus was not providing for you just a fresh start. Go ahead, try life again, get it right this time. Jesus wasn't hitting the reset button on the game and then saying, all right, I hope, you know, I hope that John gets it figured out this time and he lives a pretty holy life. I hope all this stuff happens. On the cross, Jesus was paying for your complete reconciliation. See, Jesus came and did all of his work so that it would be finished and done. He came so that reconciliation would be done, and then all we have to do is come with an open hand that receives this gift of grace. That's all we have to do. Open hand that says, Jesus, you alone are enough for me. Your work on the cross in my place, that's what I need. That's all we have to do. And we must receive this, though. If today, if you have not accepted Christ, if you haven't understood that your sin does put you in need of reconciliation, then you must bow the knee to Jesus. You must understand that Jesus is your salvation. He is your reconciliation. And he has given it to you completely through the cross. See, this truth about how Christ has redeemed us and reconciled us. This amazing truth about the size and the scale of our salvation, coupled with the truth we heard last week about who Jesus is and his preeminence and his glory and his greatness. Those two things together become these cornerstones by which you and I can frame the world and we can go into the world and live and move and work. These are the two cornerstones, who Jesus is, what he has done. This is what Paul has in mind, I think, in verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the goal that the apostle lays out for the church here is the goal of continuing and remaining, being stable and steadfast, and not shifting from the gospel. That's what he wants them to do. But why does he say it to them? Well, he says it because it's obviously not a given. He says it to them because that temptation to shift and to be, um, to be anything but stable is there. It's real and it's subtle. It's as if Paul is asking them, are you going to keep believing this? All the things I just said, are you going to keep on believing this? Are you going to let another God come and displace this? Or are you going to let the world tweak here and there where they see fit? Or are you going to be stable? I mean, Paul says to them, when you're tempted to shift, remain. And how do we do that? How do we 
um, stop ourselves from shifting. We have to be locked in on the truth. You and I have to know the truth, and we have to know it deep down in order for us to be stable. Otherwise, we will be shifting. And this is what Paul did. I mean, if we read through these things again, we understand that Paul looked the problems that this church was facing right in the eye, and he told them the truth. He wasn't shifted by any of it. He took the cultural problems that they were facing and and told them the truth. It's easy for us as we read these words um, to, to, they seem sort of sterile, right? We just read them and we think, first of all, it's just like this, maybe this academic understanding of what's going on. But the reality is, is that when Paul writes these words, he is creating a conflict. When Paul writes these words, he knows that on the other side of them, there's going to be confrontation when they're read to the church. And there's going to be confrontation with people around them in the culture, and there's also going to be confrontation inside the walls of that church. Because even inside the church, there will be some people who say, we have to believe all that? We have to take all that seriously? We have to really give up worshiping this God? Can't I keep that one? Can't I go to um, this thing that I've always gone to? Can't we just keep doing you know, this and that? There will be conflict inside and outside of the church. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that feathers are going to get ruffled with the truth. And we have to understand that, that to be in Christ's kingdom means we're not going to be at home in the kingdom of the world. And if we are just perfectly at home, we've probably already shifted. See, there will be friction between us and the world, but the great news is that you and I don't have to be moping around about that friction. I get so tired of us as Christians sometimes when I feel like we just, we just sit there and we say, well, you know, everybody who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And we're just so incredibly down and mopey about it. The reason that we don't have to be moping around about it and all this pessimistic stuff is because you and I have the truth. We have the truth. We have the victory. We, the one who's winning doesn't have to be sad. They don't have to be moping around. We have life. We have eternal life. We have the one who conquers. I mean, remember the king in whose kingdom you live. Remember last week that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Remember that he is above all things, that all things were made by him and for him. Remember that in him the fullness of God um, dwells. Remember that he holds all things together and that every authority is under him. But we don't have to be down about some friction that we face. We have the one who conquers. So when the world tells us that there has to be, there just has to be more than one truth, or there just has to be more than one God, or when there has to be no God, or whenever the world tells us that you and I are just purposeless accidents who happen to hang out on a purposeless accidental rock that orbits in a purposeless and accidental galaxy, Whenever the world tells us that Christianity can't fix a 21st century problem or that the word of God is off limits in a certain area and it doesn't have an authority here or there, you and I just tell them no. We just say no. We remain in the truth. We don't shift. And then we tell them the truth because we have the truth. This is what 2 Corinthians 10.5 is talking about as the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, every lofty opinion raised 
against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We see the lies coming at us, and we take them captive to obey Christ. But in order to do that, we have to know what it means to obey Christ. You can't take a thought captive to obey Christ if you don't know what obedience actually looks like. And so you and I have to do the hard work, not simply of understanding the Word of God up here, although we do, we must understand the Word of God up here, but we also must be obedient to Christ in our lives. We have to take obedience seriously in our thoughts and in our deeds. And once we do that, once we really take root in our Savior, in who He is, in what He's done for us, then you and I can remain, we can continue, we can go stable and steadfast into this world, and we can carry the kingdom of this King with us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have given us a great salvation. We thank you that you have given us a salvation that we did not earn, we did not deserve, and that while we were strangers and sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, it is easy for us to lose sight of this grace. It is easy for us to get shifted and to get um, pushed aside by the waves of culture, by the waves of life, and I pray that we would remain. I pray that we as a church would be a, a, a body of people who truly remain in the hope of the gospel. That we would not be shifted. And that we would pour ourselves into your word that it may be poured into us. We ask all these things in Christ's name, who has saved us. Amen.